Hello and welcome again to What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fouad, your host. My guests on the show are leaders in their fields from across the Middle East, and our conversations revolve around their life's pivot points. This season, we have entrepreneurs, doctors, designers, journalists, innovators, and much more. We're now past the halfway mark of season four, and we hope you're enjoying the lineup so far. We've also launched our members club with bonus content from each of our guests and early access to episodes. You can sign up for a free trial on Apple Podcasts and give it a try. My guest today is Ayman Mohideen, the Arab-American TV anchor on the NBC and MSNBC networks in the United States. We met over the summer in Almaza on the north coast of Egypt and had a wide-ranging discussion about his childhood and education, his career choices, and his opinion on the current political climate in the U.S. Ayman spent his formative years in the United States and moved towards journalism after he graduated. Over the years, he's worked as a field producer and reported on the Middle East with CNN and Al Jazeera, in addition to the NBC network of channels. A few years ago, he exchanged his flak jacket for a suit and tie to take on prestigious and high-profile anchor positions in New York with NBC and MSNBC. He's currently the host of Ayman, which airs on weekend evenings. As an Arab-American myself, I'm extremely proud to see a person with Ayman's background and caliber on the screen. He brings his deep intellect and provides a reasoned and measured take on events, and shines a much-needed light on issues and causes close to the heart of many of us in the region. Today we get the conversation going with our first icebreaker question. When was the last time Ayman did something for the first time? The last time I did something for the first time is actually coming to Almaza, coming to Almaza Bay. Um, this is the first time I've actually been to Sahel. I've lived in Egypt uh, for years before and was here in the early stages of many of the development projects, but I never actually made it to uh, Sahel or the north coast of Egypt for vacation. So believe it or not, my uh, the one of the most recent things I've done recently is come to Egypt, to Sahel. Your experience in Egypt for work-wise has been pretty tumultuous. And I know we're going to go into that in a little while. So this the idea of relaxing here must be I'm, kind of novel for you, right? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, you know, I lived in Egypt at different stages in my life. I was born here and I came back many times. But the years of actually living and working in Egypt were perhaps the most tumultuous. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But this is really the first time I come to Egypt with zero journalistic responsibility as an adult. And now I'm coming back with my kids. So it takes on a whole different meaning. I'm here with my family, obviously. I'm with friends, meeting friends, seeing family. So the whole trip has taken on a very different meaning. It's giving me a chance to see a side of Egypt that I had not experienced as an adult. And do you find that it's changed since you were last here? Were you last here in 2014? Is that it? I, I actually, believe it or not, I came for, I believe, the 2017 Russian Metrojet crash out of Sharm el-Sheikh. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the last time I was here. But again, that was here purely for journalistic purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was not a vacation. I was not here with my family or friends. I was living in Egypt up until 2014. I left in 2014, but I have come back since for work. And now this is my first time coming back in five years. And my first time in almost a decade coming back purely for just personal vacation. For me, wherever I am, I feel the opposite of that place. <laughs> so when I'm in the US or in England, for example, I feel more Egyptian. Yeah. And when I'm here, I feel more foreign. And I wonder, how do you feel about that? Is that something similar for you? Or or do you, are you able to sort of hold the two together? I think I hold the two together. I, I don't think that it's contradictory to be able to have multiple um, affiliations if you, if you think about it like that. I mean, I, I think of... You know, and this is perhaps more just 
a deeper philosophical, you know, point, but I personally believe in a world with less borders and I try to see and connect with people more on a human level and what we have in common. I know identity and patriotism and nationalism are always being kind of like, um, you know, shoved in our face. And I think that sometimes is good. And then for the most time, it's also challenging. So, but for me personally, I grew up, honestly, I, I say this, you know, as somebody who from the very young age of five have been traveling between cultures. So I have grown up literally with one foot in the West, one foot in the East. I mean, every couple of years, with the exception of New York, I mean, here's another way to think about it, with the exception of New York, which is now the longest I have lived in any city and where my children were born, I had never lived in any city more than five years Mm -hmm. from the age that I was, you know, one. Yeah. So for me, it was just always part of me growing up that I lived in different countries and cultures. So the the idea of identity was always very fluid in a way. I mean, you were able to just uh, not think about it almost. You just, I guess, and I remember reading about something you said that when you were growing up, you lived for a while in Amman. Yeah. And you you had to explain the U.S. to your friends there. Yeah. When you're in the U.S., you have to explain the Arab world to two friends in the US. And I guess that's but you do it almost uh without thinking and without it being an issue. Yeah, and and to be quite honest with you, it wasn't even just when I was young. I was literally with some friends last night trying to explain to them the electoral college in the US and how it works and some of the kind of minutia of American politics. Um it's I'm hard. still I'm still doing it. Sure. So so I guess I I've always grown up saying and understanding that I know both parts of the world. I may never know both parts of the world 100%, but I know enough about each part of the world to be able to talk about them comfortably and live in them comfortably and not necessarily feel that I'm at odds with whatever society that I am living in. So team Instagram or team Twitter? So I have to say they both serve very different purposes for me and I I almost say they're both as equally important. Twitter is for me 100% professional. It is just for me a stream of news and information that I rely on. I I would say 0.01% of anything I post on Twitter is uh, personal. The show, my show on MSNBC has its own Twitter account, its own Facebook page, its own TikTok. It's mostly producing content that is of our show Mm -hmm. and things that we're putting out by our network, whereas my personal Twitter account and my personal Instagram are personally managed. And How do you marry that? Because how do you, what if your opinion diverges from what is being produced by your show? I'm sure that's come up up a lot of times. It hasn't. It hasn't? No. (laughs) It hasn't. It hasn't. Oh, interesting. Well, my show is my show is about me and, no, no, and my no. opinions of it. So, of course, yeah, yeah, of course. But I'm guessing there must be some parameters that you must be adhering to on the show. Well, I mean, just to be clear, we have, you know, a standards and editorial guideline that we all abide by. I, I don't curse, for example. So I'm not going to curse on my personal page. I'm not going to curse on my on my show page. So I am very mindful of making sure that mm-hmm. what I say and how I express myself is it's co- know, coherent across the board. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we every news organization maintains editorial sure. standards, and yeah. you want to abide by those yeah. editorial standards when you're part of a, a yeah. news organization. Yeah. You can't just kind of go rogue and, and do what you want. Sure, that doesn't mean you can't express your opinion, and it doesn't mean that you can't be creative in the ways that you express your opinion. But you have to abide by um, mm. 
any kind of editorial standard mm -hmm. in any company that you work in. And on Twitter or on Instagram, what what are the five favorite accounts that you like to follow? Maybe you have some on Instagram that you like that are like a little light, frivolous, and then the ones on Twitter that you you like for work. To be honest with you, it's not, I, I don't want to I don't want to just specifically say accounts because I don't want it to come across as a as an endorsement. That sure. okay. but what I'm saying is I, I follow a variety of accounts yeah. that range everything from food. Uh, there are amazing, and for me personally, because I love to cook. Okay. So there are a lot of accounts in the U.S. that I follow of Arab chefs who oh, wow. are Middle Eastern chefs, and so they cook and they explain. And for me, I really enjoy it. So that's right. one. I love barbecue accounts. I did a lot of. Okay. I love a lot of barbecue yeah. accounts. I love sports accounts. Um, and also, what sports are you into? What do you like? Soccer, definitely. And then I follow a lot of news accounts. So, sure. and you follow a lot of accounts that you know. Just a couple of years ago, you would never be able to hear from people directly. And I follow people that live in places in the world that I live that I can no longer access as easily, whether it's, you know, Gaza or Iraq yeah. or Afghanistan. Yeah. And, and it's an easy way for me to hear from people who are living in these places That's right. directly and see what they share directly. So it shapes and influences yeah. my worldview about these events. It's interesting because last season we, I interviewed Sultan Al-Qasimi, yeah. who is based in New York now. Yeah. And um, obviously had a huge amount of uh, uh, influence here in, in 2011. Um, but he was following the most interesting and really esoteric accounts that we wouldn't come across yeah. um, in our daily life. Yeah. But then because he mentioned them and he talked about them, I went in and found, wow, that's really interesting. I mean, he was following a guy in Dubai who had collated old photographs of the city from its inception. Yeah. Wow. And he was putting them online. I mean, that's his, that was his interest. Yeah. So he followed it. Things like that that no, you're I mean, able to access. I follow a lot of very interesting accounts in places all around the world. You know, there's uh, history in photography. I follow yeah. everyday Middle East. I follow everyday has become like this own f franchise of um, uh, places that they just kind of post pictures of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I follow a lot of fashion. My wife is in fashion. She has a, a, a shoe brand. And I follow a lot of her world sure, um, in sure. terms of what she's interested sure. in. Um, and certainly a lot of entertainment and culture yeah. and news. So yeah. it's it's almost really hard for me to pick yeah, for you five. I love, look, I, on a personal level, my two hobbies are photography and food. And so if you scroll through my uh, accounts and see what I follow, you will see that I follow a lot, a of, lot of photography, <laughs> a lot of food. Yeah. I love following a lot of uh, amazing uh, photographers. I know your parent. you were born in Egypt, but I know you emigrated at the age of five, right? Correct. To the US. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about um your early memories from here if you have any and then what it was like growing up in the states and um and 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 how that was for you yeah so my first memory in egypt actually believe it or not was leaving egypt so i don't think i i remembered much before the age of five but i do remember um leaving egypt and starting a new life in the u.s when my parents immigrated to the u.s and the first place we went to was in michigan and uh, we settled there for the first couple of years which was a complete culture shock because i just was totally taken back by how cold it was. It was obviously the first time I had seen snow in my life. Um, we really were um, assimilated into American life. So we started playing a lot of American sports like ice hockey and uh, soccer and and going to summer camps in Canada and doing a lot of North American things yeah. that I was not necessarily yeah. exposed to. Yeah. But they were instrumental in, in kind of giving us a very strong foundation as a family unit. This is in the early 80s, right? This was in 1984. I was five years right. old. Yeah. Okay. So from 84 yeah. to 89. 
Um, and I think like, you know, like a lot of immigrants, when you first arrived to the US, it posed a lot of challenges and we were very far away from our family here in the Middle East. And keep in mind, you know, this was obviously pre-internet, pre-satellite TV. You weren't really aware of what was happening. You, you would call your relatives back here in the Middle East once every, you know, couple of months maybe. And it's such a risk, right? I mean, I'm always fascinated by this. Um, you know, when my parents did it, they had, they were newly married. So I guess it's an adventure. Yeah. Um, but they moved along with a lot of family members at the same time. Yeah. So they formed their own little network once they got there. But I'm, I find it fascinating. I think, you know, being the, the, the child of immigrants, you, it's hard to understand that that's a risk what they did. That was risky. It's for, I, I think for me, I mean, having thought about this a lot in my life, especially as I got older and had my own children, immigration is an act of courage. Yeah. Um, Completely. It is an act of generosity for future generations. Yeah. It is perhaps the greatest example of paying it forward because the people who decide to immigrate are making an active decision that the reason why they're immigrating is not to improve their own life. They're going to countries they had never been, at least in my parents' case, they were coming to a country they had never stepped foot in. And I think if you understand that at a young age, and I think we understood it because of just our own personal family experience, you understand that responsibility that you owe to your parents and you owe to your kids. Um, and it, that has shaped my worldview about how I view, you know, the immigration crisis in the United States right now, which is always an ongoing debate where people try to, and also in Europe, where people always try to dehumanize immigrants for wanting a better life and yeah. wanting to make the sacrifices. Yeah. I think there is no greater act of courage than picking up your roots. And I think it also depends like you said, at what stage in your life you do it. Um, when my parents immigrated to the US, uh, my parents already had, you know, my brother and I, so they had already had their family. Um, you know, my parents were both very established Which in their career. Which is even curves. riskier, right? Completely. Yeah. I, I think it's different when you move at a, at a young age. If you're a student, if you're, you, you go to a country to study, you fall in love with it and you stay. Those are very different experiences than saying you, I think my dad was around 40 years old when he left Egypt. So he had lived half of his life in this country. Um, same with my mother. They had lived, obviously, she had, she's Palestinian, so she had lived her life in the Middle East. Her family was here. Her roots were here. You know, her, yeah. pro her professional career was started here. To pick up and say, I am going to leave all of that behind to pursue a new life that is potentially, potentially going to be better for my children um, is also like just such a, such a risk, like you said, but it's such an act of courage. And, and when they look back, I'm just curious, uh, are they, they must be very satisfied. The short answer is absolutely. You know, they have a son who is a life-saving neurosurgeon. So I think just the ability to know that they have one of their sons be able to excel academically, become a neurosurgeon, be able to do the type of work that he's doing, impacting and saving people's lives, being able to... And you, Ayman. Let's no, I know. <laughs> you. <laughs> no, no. I, but I also was going to say, and then the other side of it, being able to, you know, turn on the TV and sure. see their son's name, Ayman, on a uh, major American Absolutely. cable network Absolutely. and being able to speak in a way yeah. that they can be proud of. The pride uh, of it all. Absolutely. Exactly. So Absolutely. I think ultimately, you know, my parents um, just celebrated their 47th... Um, 47th wedding anniversary Amazing. just a couple of days ago. Yeah. And uh, my mother sent us on the family group chat a message where, you know, jokingly said that, you know, it's two life sentences, almost two life sentences of marriage. But she said that she, you know, the greatest gift have, has been being able to see her grandchildren grow yeah. up in what they are, you know, yeah, yeah. young it's, kids I, right now, but yeah, but feels that it was these worth it. The, they're, they're important moments. They're very important moments, I think. Yeah, yeah. That way you also should be proud, I think. 
of them and, and you know, comfortable in, Thank you. In, in all of that. Well, I mean, I have a tremendous amount of love and respect for them because I constantly ask myself, would I have been able to make the same choices that they made, you know, and the same sacrifices? As was the case for many people, 9-11 was a turning point and confirmed for Ayman his career path. More on that right after this break. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, you can find out more about the screenwriting process with acclaimed filmmaker Mo Hevzi, or about the luxury design industry with Monez and Ayad Raouf, the sisters behind Ukhtin. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Malak Fuad. You're listening to What I Did Next, and this is my conversation with Ayman Mohideen. Tell me about what 9-11 meant to you or how did it impact you? I know that you were already working at the time. You were, uh, were you an intern or were you already an employee at NBC, right? Yeah, no, so I was actually, so it's, I was a desk assistant, which okay. is a step above an intern. Right. It's, it's an entry-level program, yep. but it's not a permanent position mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. within the news organization. Yep. So it's an 18-month program, or at least it was when I was there. It was around 18 months. And you were in Washington right at the time. Well, I was So I was going to American University, finishing up my master's program. The summer before 9-11, I had been doing it for about six months. My first day ever was literally George Bush's inauguration. That was okay. the first day okay. I started yep. working as a desk yep. assistant. So from January of that year until September of that year, I would say that I wasn't very um, enamored by it. I It was the summer where, you know, the, as they say in the news world, the news cycle was very slow. Yeah. And I was thinking about going to law school. I, hmm. you know, wanted to apply to law school. I took my LSATs yep. and was starting that process of trying to go into law school. And 9-11 happened. And that really kind of changed my world because... What did it mean for you? Not what it meant for your career. That's a separate question. But what did it mean for you as uh, an Arab American? How did it feel for you? Did you feel under threat? Did you feel that people were suspicious of you? How did it feel to be there when that happened? So to be honest with you, I think because I was a college student and you know, perhaps it was like a little a different atmosphere of what you're exposed to. I was living in Washington, D.C., 
I would say that I don't know if I ever felt threatened. I was actually a little bit more concerned for my parents um, because I was aware that, you know, as as Arab Americans, as Muslim Americans living in, in the South, I was thinking maybe they would experience some backlash. Maybe they would hear something from a neighbor who would say something in passing mm -hmm. or do something. And as, as immigrants, they're not as empowered as the second generation as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even, I mean, I think, you know, they they never experienced anything. So, I mean, like at the end of the at the end of the day, they never they personally never experienced mm -hmm. anything. Which I'm not naive to say, like there was no backlash. Sure. But in terms of my own personal experience, I never experienced. I mean, we all had these like running jokes about what to wear and what to dress at the airport, and yeah. you know, when you we started, all did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in, yeah. in a way that we were like anticipating sure. the backlash. Sure. Um, so I think for us consciously, we were like, let's be mindful of not kind of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, because you started hearing about all these instances of people being pulled off planes because of what they were wearing. And if you speak Arabic with someone. So there was this, this in a kind of a humorous way, the running jokes among my friends and stuff about like sure. how to behave and, and sure. stuff and assimilate yeah. and maybe yeah. downplay your Arabness. Yeah. Um, but fundamentally, I didn't experience any negative backlash. What it did, though, on a more kind of like important point was it really opened my eyes to how grave of a situation um, we were experiencing between what was happening in the Middle East and the West um, and the perils that we were about to find ourselves in. Because I think I realized quickly on following 9-11 that what the Middle East was about to go uh, undergo because of what America was about to do was going to be disastrous, was going to be the defining thing of my lifetime. I mean, it didn't take, you didn't have to be a genius to see that what the United States was about to embark on. And we're still, yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally still yeah. paying the price of that attack and the American reaction yeah. to that attack. It's interesting because, as you know, last season I had Clarissa Ward on the show and 9-11 was a major turning point for her as yeah. well. Um, but in a very interesting way because she is uh, half English, half American. But for her, this was just a, a, a moment where she thought, why are we so misunderstood? Why, why is there this miscommunication happening between one part of the world with another? And so that's how she understood it. So for her, the, her takeaway from this was she wanted to spend her working life communicating with these different parts of the world mm. and explaining, which I think is very much what you were maybe even subconsciously looking to do um, this idea of communicating and explaining one side to the other. I think that's a that came later in life. I think for me, um, I understood why there is a great sense of resentment towards America in the Middle East. I don't think you have to be, um, you know, I don't think you have to be a genius to know that America's policies in the Middle East evoke very negative reactions, very hypocritical foreign policies, very contradictory foreign policies, foreign policies that are not grounded on in any values or interests. So that is not in any way, shape or form a justification for attacks. But I think this questioning of why do they hate us, um, I think was a very stupid question. I mean, I, it was all over the newspapers in America. People, it was on the cover of... It was of, on the cover of Time, right? It was on or the cover Newsweek. of... I forgot which magazine, Newsweek Time, but it was on the cover of a lot of things. Why do they hate us? And, and, but and was ask it a stupid question, Ayman? I don't know if it was, because if you're living in North Dakota and you don't follow international news, that's a perfectly legitimate question. You have no exposure to what's happening anywhere else in the, in, in the world. And most people in small town USA do not watch the international news. So why do they hate us, in my mind, is a perfectly legitimate question. Fair. Maybe the, it's not a stupid question. Maybe the answer of like trying to explain um, 
you know, if if you don't explain to your audience what you're doing, you can't then wake up the next morning and say, hey, why do they hate us? If you're ignorant about what your government is doing, if you're unaware about the abuses and the atrocities and the way your government is perpetuating dictators and authoritarian regimes and exploiting the resources of a region and playing up conflict to constantly keep a region in you know unstable, favoring one government over the other, perpetuating a military occupation of another group. If you're doing that and your own people are ignorant about it, the question isn't really why do they hate us? The question should be more about like, this is why they hate us. Okay. So yeah, uh, it, it's more framing about the framing the of it, it's it, exactly. It, so so in a perfect world, yeah, I guess I understand your point that it is the question is right. I think it's very disingenuous to say that the American government and the American media at the time of 9-11 were unaware of what America was doing in the region, yeah. in the Middle East, yeah. and being unable to explain that to the yeah. American audience, which is what is one of the main factors um, that I try to, again, I, I in my show, in my reporting, is you have to know what your government is doing in this part of the world to understand why there are certain tensions and certain views and, and certain perspectives uh, about America. I agree with you completely, but I still think that the, the news media is catering to, in the US, catering to people like you and me who are already interested, or to a certain, you know, the coasts, uh, the West Coast and the, the East Coast, the middle, the middle states, if you're, uh, you know, in those small towns, you're not going to access this kind of news. Well, I mean, I humbly disagree with you. Okay, <laughs> please do. First of all, in 2001 is very different than where we are now. Of course. So, of so course. we can kind of, I mean, it's, it's hard to kind of talk about where we are now and say back in 2001, what the attitude. Absolutely. Information for me and how you consume information is just as much about the consumer as it is about the person who's producing the news. And kind of to make it an analogous to consumers of other products, and we can debate whether journalism is a good or not, you know, but when you are going into a supermarket, you have millions of options of what you can eat. People choose healthy stuff, people choose organic stuff, people choose chips, people eat junk food, people eat vegan, gluten, whatever it is, you have options, you study, you research, you are aware of what it is that you are consuming and putting in your body. Some people care down to the degree of ingredient. Some people generally don't. Some people do. Information is the same. Mm -hmm. It is your responsibility as a citizen of a democracy where you have access to free press and millions of data points, whether yeah. on social media, whether on cable, whether on radio, whether on digital, whether on broadcast, whether on local news, to access that information and to actively choose what it is that you want to put in your brain and what it is that you want to expose yourself to. So if you're telling me that you are in North Dakota and you don't care about what your government is doing overseas, I can't help you. I can I can present it to you. It is there now. Absolutely. You have access to it in yeah. every single platform. If you don't care, that's on you. Yeah. No, and I think you're right. I think we forget that 2001 was very different to what it is today. Right. Um, you know, there was still very much people were uh, watching network news. Plus, with the 9-11 event, everyone was tuned in and getting their information from one or two, so you know, right. main sources. Whereas yeah. today, it's completely different. Yeah. So, no, I take your point on that. Definitely.
I just want to go through a couple of highlights, if you like, in terms of um, things that you covered that you became very well known for. So the court appearance of Saddam Hussein was also a very um, uh, visible period for you, a visible um, uh, story for you. And then, of course, Gaddafi, with, uh, when he, you did the first interview with him yeah. after he abandoned WMD. And then, of course, the Egyptian uprising in 2011. Yeah. So these are kind of, um, if you like, the highlights people, in, at least in the region, know you for. Um, and then, of course, there was Gaza in 2014. I kind of want to touch on... Well, before on... that, there was Gaza in 2008, which is Operation Cast Lead. Okay. Yeah. So, so I wanted just to touch on uh, a couple of things. I don't want to go back and 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 you know tread over those those uh, those episodes in your life because they're they've been publicized a lot. But I'm interested in, for example, the 2014 period in Gaza. Um, you were the first uh, journalist on the ground for NBC, but then there was a bit of controversy internally. Uh, they wanted to bring in another journalist, and then they U-turned and they allowed you both to be there. This, I guess, career-wise, was a turning point for you. Well, I think the 2014 war in uh, in Gaza was unique because it really also was the beginning of uh, real-time social media, particularly Instagram. I think because it was such a visual medium, people were able to see. And I was using Instagram along with my reporting on the ground. Yep. So it was also on social media and people were able to see the pictures that I was posting. Um, and being able to provide context behind those uh, snapshots. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I was on the ground in Gaza, so you're able to see like a much more intimate close-up, um, you know, uh, reality of, yeah. what, of what it was. In the editorial decision-making process of any company, there are decisions about how you want to cover a war. And NBC made a decision and thought this was a better way to cover the war. And they were taking all kinds of considerations and factors into the equation. And ultimately, I think when people saw that I was asked to leave uh, Gaza, they were very upset about it because the the coverage was being followed and being watched very yeah, closely. Yeah, it was very immediate. Yeah. yeah. So I think uh, there was a lot of, you know, like social media backlash and outrage about the fact mm -hmm. that this person who was providing another tool of coverage, not just on cable news back to the US, but also on social media, which is accessible around the world. What happened after 2014 for you career-wise? Where did you go after that? So I was still a foreign correspondent by most uh, accounts based in London, covering more than just the Middle East. Mm -hmm. There was mm -hmm. the Europe, there was Asia and stuff like that. And then in 2015, 2016, um, you know, I wanted to start exploring the next stage of my career. I had now been a correspondent, I had been a producer, and I wanted to see if there was an opportunity to try and transition into being an anchor. And I, um, you know, made an effort with my bosses and my executives at the company to give me an opportunity uh, of anchoring. Like anyone, when you start out, I was anchoring, you know, an overnight show at 4 a.m. and 3 a.m. and worked my way up slowly to 5 a.m. Yeah, and yeah. Then ultimately did and, a day side show. Did and... that coincide when your personal life was getting more settled and you were looking to settle down yes. and, and be more present in one place? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. New York. My wife was living in New York at the time, um, and so I, and I also knew that I always wanted to live in New York. I had never lived in New York, but I was absolutely in love with the city. And for me, New York always had this kind of like gravitational pull. I had visited it. 
Um, I did Model UN. Yeah, it's I went a very to the, dynamic city. It's yeah, incredible. I went to the United yeah. Nations. I mean, there's no other city in the world like New York. Yeah. And for me, it just had this amazing pull. And I knew that at some point in my life, I wanted to live in New York. Mm -hmm. um, and so as this opportunity professionally began to um, develop, then I was also able to, you know, develop my personal life and be able to yeah. get settled in yeah. New York, get married. So one of the more visible recent um, like soundbite videos that have been making the rounds is when you spoke about Shirin Abu Atlas um, killing. That was very, it felt very personal. It felt like you, you're clearly, you're clearly friends. You were clearly moved by that. Um, how does that sort of segment come across in the U.S.? Um, because from the Middle East perspective, being someone who lives here, you know, we're it's we're almost pre-programmed to believe that in the U.S. there's an, a pro-Israel bias built into news organizations' uh, approaches to news. Um, but clearly, that was a completely breaking the mold kind of segment. I'm really interested in that because, firstly, you are an Arab American. I, are you the first Arab American anchor on a on a on a network? I, I it's very t it's very difficult for me to answer that question. I know of other Arab American anchors. I mean, Hela Gorani, for example, sure. is an Arab American sure. anchor on CNN International. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if she ever did anything. I don't know if she's ever actually hosted a show on sure. CNN Domestic. Domestic, yeah. So I don't, I don't, I don't. I, to be honest with you, I don't yeah. kind of. I don't preoccupy sure. myself of like whether but, I'm the first but or for, not. For someone living here or living anywhere yeah. to see you on air, to see an Arab American stating what he thinks uh, from the heart and feeling like you can say what you like is so refreshing and it's so unusual. Um, and that segment on Shireen was particularly moving and it was an amazing tribute. But you asked questions. You, you clearly asked some tough questions um, in that segment. And, you know, 10 years ago, that wouldn't have been on air. To your point, the more important thing to take away from that is you need to have a diversity in the newsroom. You need to have diversity in the people that are on the air. Um, when I think, you know, when people hear my perspective uh, on Shireen or the Middle East or even Russia or Ukraine, um, it's because my experiences have opened my eyes to a different worldview that I think is what I try to reflect in my show. The takeaway is the more you have diversity in your newsroom, the more you're going to get different perspectives. The more you have diverse anchors, the more you're going to have you yeah. know, diversity. Yeah. So that's what I encourage. Yeah. And I think our news organization is very committed to that. So, so ultimately, just to, just to go back to your point about is there a pro-Israel bias um, in the media? Arguably, there is, but you have to understand why there is that bias, and then how do you correct it? Um, and I think that's the harder yeah. question. And and tell harder me about family. your current show. Tell me what is the thinking behind it. What is the, the 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 ethos of it? Are you are you are you going down a particular kind of editorial track? What what is the thinking behind the show? So I mean. The show is <laughs> the show's titled Amen. So I guess you you get a perspective of um, my worldview and how I approach a lot of the big political and foreign issues that America is facing, mm -hmm. both culturally as well as um, you know politically. And look, I, at the end of the day, 
there are certain things that I am very comfortable talking about, and there's other things that I am uh, more interested in, and there are things that I'm still learning about. So I try to be as raw, as candid as I can with my perspectives on a lot of these issues. I mm -hmm. try to bring interesting guests. We try to have dynamic interviews. Um, I try not to fall into a groupthink mindset when we talk about a lot of big foreign policy issues, whether it's Russia, Ukraine or Israel, Palestine. I try to have uh, a different perspective on a lot of these things, be a little bit more critical. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is shaped by my own personal experience, having lived overseas and experienced what the world sometimes thinks about American politics and American foreign policy. I try to bring that experience into the conversations I have on my show. Thank you, Ayman. My pleasure. What Thank a, you so much. What a treat. Welcome. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having Thank me. A real you. pleasure. Thank you for listening today. If you've enjoyed the conversation, we've got more from Ayman in a bonus episode exclusively for our members out next week. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts to get this. Plus, as a subscriber, you'll get early access to our next episode as well. This episode of What I Did Next was brought to you by ANT Media with me, Malak Fuad, and is co-produced by Shirag Desai. For video snippets from our interviews and other updates, just search for What I Did Next on Instagram, Twitter, and on LinkedIn as well. We'd be really grateful if you could also leave us a review of the episode in your favorite podcast player, as this helps more people know about the show. See you soon.